And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, your word is truth. So as we come before your word now, would you sanctify us in truth? Would you cause us to grow in hope, in obedience, and in faithfulness? Would you do these things in us now by your spirit? Guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews in chapter 10. I want to take here, at least for the reading, these first 18 verses. I know that sounds like a lot, but uh, we won't gulp it all at once, but I want us to hear it all. Uh, This is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. Now, if you've been with us over these last several months, you know we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. And as we hear this section of Hebrews, we notice many of the same themes that we have seen in previous weeks and months. 
But even though we see some of the same things, I would encourage you not to tune them out just because we've heard them before. In fact, almost everything that we hear are things that we've heard before. It's good that we hear them again and again. In fact, don't tune them out, only do the, do the opposite. I want you to especially tune in because the author seems to think we need to hear this time and time and time again. I know that's certainly true for me. I need to hear things multiple times in order for them to sink in. Just ask Laura. The dishes eventually get done, but it takes me a couple before it actually takes. This repetition then here in Hebrews is not just beating a dead horse. It is training us how to ride on a living horse. And learning to ride then takes frequent persistence, frequent practice. That's part of our discipleship, part of our following after Jesus. So we need to hear these things again and again. We need to hear again that the blood of the old sacrifices could never take away sin. They were shadows that point to the reality of Jesus. We need to hear again and again that Jesus uh, gave himself as a blood sacrifice willingly and that that sacrifice was in one accord with the will of the Father and of the Spirit. We know that here, need to hear again that the offering of Jesus was a singular event, once for all, powerful enough to deal with all time. We need to hear that the sacrifice of Jesus truly takes away all the sin of all believers who are now forgiven with the law etched on our hearts by the new covenant. We need to hear again that all of this is leading up to a time in which uh, Jesus will have all of his enemies, including all of sin and all of death, under his feet, and we will see him as truly reigning as ruler on his throne in heaven. That's all here in these verses for us to hear again for us to be reminded and, and we could spend our time today on any or all of these because these are the bedrock this is the foundation this is the launch pad of our faith especially of the verses that come next if you look in the very next verse after the ones we read there's the little magic word in verse 19 therefore that what is coming next is all going to be built on what we've heard here that's true of Jesus, that, that what's coming next about our confidence before God, what's coming next about our assurance before God, what's coming next about us drawing near to God, all of this is built on Jesus. I'm itching to get to those items about drawing near. They will bring our faith to life, to breathe it into a burning flame, but we cannot get there yet unless we build the house of faith upon a rock. And that rock we know is Jesus. That's not just a Sunday school answer, that is true. We build our lives upon his life and death and resurrection. We build our lives upon his sacrifice for sin. We build our lives upon his work in us. Jesus is better. He's better than everything, and he is life for us. Now, all that said, this morning, 
we're going to zoom in on a particular work of Jesus in the text that we just read. In fact, it's just a particular uh, word even, a particular doctrine. It's found in verse 14. Let me read it again. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's the word, sanctified. I want this morning to focus on sanctification. And during this time, we're going to look at three questions. If you're a note taker, I'm throwing you a bone here. You you don't have to take notes, but if you are and you like structure, this is for you. Three questions about sanctification. One, what is it? Two, when is it? And three, how does it happen? What is it? When is it? And how does it happen? Here we go. First question. What is it? What is sanctification? If you're a fisherman, there's a turn. Uh, If you're a fisherman uh, and you catch anything and you actually tell the truth about the things that you catch, uh, you know that sometimes uh, you catch a fish and you pull it into the boat or onto the shore, wherever it is that you're fishing. And has this ever happened to you that you take the hook off the fish and you think you've got it, maybe you're holding it up for a picture, and the tail gives that little little flick and, and the fish just hits the edge of the boat or the edge of the shore and then just ends up right back in the water. Isn't that maddening? You know, this, it's like, I thought I had a hold on it, but, but, but there it is. In some ways, we know the doctrine of sanctification can be, for some of us, a slippery fish. It's hard for us to get a hold on. So get out your net, okay? Grip your hands on tight. We're going to try, try to get a grip on what sanctification is. When some of us hear the word sanctify, When we hear the word sanctify, our minds sometimes think about getting rid of sin. And that is part of what sanctification is, although it's more than that. We know this because Jesus prayed on the night that he was crucified. This is in John chapter 17, if you want to check my work. Jesus prayed on the night that he was crucified that the Father would sanctify all believers, which makes sense. But then Jesus says, I sanctify myself. Jesus says, I sanctify myself, which is interesting because we know Jesus was and is sinless. There was no need for Jesus to get rid of sin. So sanctified there, when Jesus is talking about it, broadly means to be separate, to be set apart for a particular purpose. So that's the sort of thing that we pray. We pray this word in the Lord's Prayer right at the beginning. Our Father, who art, who art in heaven, if, or who is in heaven, depending on things. Our Father, the next word is hallowed or sanctified. We're praying that the Lord's name would be set apart. 
Or when the author of Hebrews here talks in the surrounding sections around this chapter about the tabernacle or, or the temple, he calls it the holy of holies or the most holy place. That word holy is, is again, the word translated here, sanctified, that it's a place that's sacred, that's set apart as holy. So when the author here talks about us being sanctified, we are set apart. But I think it's more than just that. There is a particular way in which Christians are set apart. And I think we get some help, or at least some clarity, from Paul and the way he uses the word in the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 5, just a couple verses here. Let me find them. Ah, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul writes this. Listen for the, for the word sanctification. Husbands, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Did you hear it? The word sanctify is run in parallel with cleansing, with washing. So the answer to our question, what is sanctification, is that Christians are set apart, particularly by being washed or by being made clean. So that's what it is. Now, second question, when does this happen? When does this sanctification or this setting apart by cleansing, when does this occur? And this one's also a slippery fish, so redouble that grip. Let me show you what's tricky about this. So in Hebrews, in, in chapter 10 here, verse 14, we read this. I'll read it just again for a reminder. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Don't need to know all the English grammar, but it's a, it's a present tense. Those who are being sanctified. It is happening now. It is ongoing in that sense. But look back in verse 10. The author says, And by that will we have been sanctified. Did you hear it? We have been sanctified. That sounds like something that has happened in the past. So wait a minute, preacher. W which one is it? Is sanctification this ongoing process now happening, or is it for us something that has happened in the past? We know that the author of Hebrews here didn't just forget what he was talking about or slip up. He's, he's not, you know, gone a little crazy or just, you know, got a little loose with his terminology. I think the author means to tell us that in both senses this is true. The sanctification has both a past sense and an ongoing sense. Let's look at the rest of Scripture so we can see if that fits, and I think it does. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. I'll read several verses here. Again, listen for the word sanctified. Uh, Paul writes this, Do you not know, this is verse 9, Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what's happening here in the context of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is looking out at this particular church, this particular body of believers in Corinth, and when he looks out, he sees a bunch of drunks, a bunch of hoarders, a bunch of gays, a bunch of thieves, a bunch of idolaters, a bunch of cheats, and yet he sees that these are true sons of God. They're inheritors of the kingdom of God. Now, what makes these people any different from the rest of the world? It is not because they have ceased to struggle with these sins, because they put sin to death and never struggle with these temptations again. The difference is because Jesus has stepped into their sin and washed them and justified them and sanctified them. All of this was done. These, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. It's done. These are things that have happened in the past. So Christians are not slaves to sin. We are not characterized by sins. We're slaves to Jesus, who's our new master, once and for all. And this gives us confidence and assurance before God. In a past sense, we have been sanctified. We've been washed, in the author of Hebrews' words, we've been perfected for all time. That's the past sense of the word. But there's another sense of it. There's a sense in which we are also still being sanctified. We're still being sanctified. In fact, we affirmed this. Is this shady that I got you to say this earlier in the service and I'm now bringing it up? We said this during our affirmation of faith from the larger catechism when we asked, what is sanctification? The last words are, these graces are stirred up, increased, and strengthened that they more and more die to sin and rise in newness of life. In this sense, sanctification is ongoing until the day we die. Which means we are works in progress. We're not yet complete. And I personally find quite a bit of relief in that. Uh, later in the, the larger catechism, we hear these words. It's question number 78, if, if you care about these things. But see if these words ring true of you. The question is, why are believers not completely satisfied? The answer is this. Believers are not completely or perfectly sanctified because they retain some remnants of sin throughout their whole being. 
and are continually plagued with desires of their old sinful nature that are contrary to the Spirit. Consequently, believers are frequently defeated by temptation. Believers commit many sins, and believers are hindered from performing their spiritual obligations so that even their best works in God's eyes are imperfect and defiled. Does that sound familiar? It does to me. That sounds like my own experience. If you struggle with sin, you're not alone. It's true of every Christian. So when we ask the question, when are we sanctified? The main answer to that question is we are sanctified throughout our whole lives. Which means... If you're a Christian who struggles or might be tempted particularly towards something like drunkenness, that may be a struggle throughout your entire life. And you may have to consciously and actively work toward putting away that sin. You might have to avoid certain situations, certain places, certain people in order to do that, but that is part of your ongoing sanctification. This means that if you are a Christian who struggles with homosexuality or any particular sexual sin, it is likely that many of this you may war against some of that for your entire life as part of your ongoing sanctification. And you may have to make war on that sin actively, consciously. You might have to take stock of the sorts of movies you expose yourself to or the sort of media or magazines you expose yourself to as part of that warring against sin. Or if you're a Christian who struggles or is tempted towards some of the more subtle sins, like scoffing, like greed, like envy, like certain worries, or a lack of love. You may have to work hard to dig out that sin so that you can see it even to begin with, so that you can listen to others when they point out that sin to you out of love, so you can root out those sins and not let them feed in your heart until it ruins your relationships, your homes, your work, and all other aspects of your life. And if this part of sanctification sounds hard, it is. It is. It's hard. It is work. It's a fight. But it is worth, it is worth the fight for sanctification. This will make you whole by the grace of Jesus. Uh, there's a line. Um, in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is a part of the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. I joked with one of you last week about uh, citing C.S. Lewis often, but here I am again. Um, in, in this book, it's, there's a, a bunch of, in the Narnia series. In this book, there's a boy called Eustace Scrub. And the first sentence of the book says, and he almost deserved his name. But Eustace Scrub is one of the cousins of the original kids that went into Narnia, and, and, and he's just a, a brat. 
uh, throughout the whole book, he's whiny and complaining. And, and at one point in the book, he finds this armband that turns him worse. He turns into a, a literal dragon, an awful dragon, and, and he's bothered even by himself. And he meets Aslan as this dragon. He meets Aslan the lion, and Aslan says to Eustace, you must undress and be washed clean. So Eustace tries to listen. He tries to take off his dragon scales. He takes them off and then realizes that he's only shed his skin and there are scales underneath. So he tries to take them off again. He tries to take them off again, and he tries to take them off again and finds that he cannot shed his skin. And Aslan says, I must undress you. And Aslan takes his claws and cuts into his skin. Eustace says, it hurts, but it's like a scab that hurts, but is satisfying when it comes off. And Aslan throws him into the water to be washed. And when he comes out, he's a boy. He's a boy again. And he admits that he's been a beast, he says. I've been terribly beastly. Um, and in an instant, his guilt is gone there. And yet C.S. Lewis, the author of this, gives us, the reader, a little aside. This is the section I want us to hear. Lewis says this, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of them I shall not notice. The cure had begun. The cure had begun. You know, in one sense now here, Eustace has been washed. But in another larger sense, he is being washed as the cure of Christ is taking effect on him. Now, there we are. That's what it is. That's uh, when it happens is throughout the course of our lives. Third question, final one. How does sanctification happen? How is this cure carried out in our lives? We know some aspects of our faith, a technical term warning coming here, some aspects of our faith are what we call monergistic it's a fancy word. Pay big money for words like that. Uh, some aspects of our faith are called are monergistic, which means mono, like uh, monogamy, one, married to one person in monogamy. Mono meaning one, and ergon meaning work. So monergism is one work, or one, there's one worker in monergism. So an example of this is justification, the doctrine of justification. When we are pardoned of sin by Jesus, when we are declared righteous before God, this is a monergistic work. It's a one-worker work. It is something that God, through Christ, does alone. It is not our work in any way whatsoever. It is by grace so that no one can boast. It is Christ alone who does this work in us. This is Aslan cutting the scales because Eustace can't do any of it. But 
when we're asking the question about how sanctification works in its ongoing sense. It is not monergistic. This is what we call synergistic. Syn, not S-I-N, S-Y-N, synergistic. S-Y-N meaning together. It's a together work. That's how sanctification happens in us. So sanctification, we know, is a work of God. It is God's free grace. It is Christ's work. But his work enables us here now to join in his work throughout our lives. He's the one who strengthens us in this, stirs up faith in this, makes us alive to do this now. So in sanctification, we are not just kings that lie back in a hot tub and and let the sanctification just bubble around us. Nor are we just sort of slaves in the sense that we're sort of washboard scrubbing by ourselves of our own strength, but we're, some, we're co-workers in this. We're together workers with God, so it's closer to the sense uh, of an old plow where there's an ox and a plowman who are pulling together to till and to plant and to harvest. It is God's grace. It is his work. But his work brings us here to join him in this work. We are already justified. He has done that by himself. But now he brings us to join him in in the act of sanctification so that we work toward holiness, so that we fight against sin, and so that we strive for sanctification. That's why the author of Hebrews says, it's in chapter 12, if I can find it, verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for this, seek after this, he says. Don't just lay back, lean forward. So Christian, are you willing by God's grace and power to strive for your sanctification? Christian, are you willing to put even blood, sweat, and tears toward your sanctification out of love and obedience for Christ? Are you willing to do that? If your response to that question is, Nathan, I want to. I, I want to try to, but I don't, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. Nathan, you do not know the temptations that I have faced, the sins that I have fallen into. I, I feel tired and exhausted, and many days I just feel like I have nothing left to give. Christian, don't forget that Jesus has put his blood, sweat, and tears into sanctifying you too. Jesus has put himself into this. Verse 14, again, of our text, by a single offering, he, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus has done it and is doing it. And the Lord Jesus knows that you are weak. 
the Lord Jesus knows that I am weak and that we need strength for sanctification. And so he'll feed us of his strength. Which is why on the night before Jesus died, Jesus brought his, ta- his followers to a table. And he gave them a meal, something to feed on, food to strengthen them, to nourish their faith. My, this is my bread, or this is my body, this is my blood. I give these to you. Take them and remember me, but not only remember me. As you take, eat, and drink by faith, you are united to me. You are participating in me. You are communing in common union with me. And so as we are united to Jesus, we're strengthened with his strength, empowered with his power, emboldened and enlivened to be sanctified in truth. Christian, are you willing to follow Jesus in this? Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, I feel this. Would you continue to strengthen us to grow to look more like you? We want your name to be honored in us so that we boast only in you. Thank you for your great gifts to us. Would you help us to press into them for all they're worth? Would you sanctify us by your power? We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.